We are in the book of Acts tonight, chapter 28. So if you'll turn to that place in God's Word, I want to read you two phrases as we begin tonight, then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the message tonight. First of all, when you look at the last phrase of the last verse of chapter 27, here's what you'll see. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now, if you look at the last phrase of verse 14 of chapter 28, here's what you'll read. And so we came to Rome. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful tonight for your wonderful blessings that have been poured out on us through all of life, but we think of today and think of the Lord's Day and think of your great wisdom in providing such a day that we might come and be nourished up in the words of sound doctrine, that we might be refreshed, that we might be renewed so that as we face a new week that we have a renewed sense of your presence and your kindness and blessing in our lives and your direction as well. Thank you that your word is able to furnish all of those things for us. And so we pray tonight, even though we have a full evening, that you would bless us, that you would just give us the ability now to put away the cares of tomorrow and of this week so that we're not robbed through distraction of the blessing that you might have and the, the word that you might have for us in our hearts tonight. I pray, Lord, that you will help me. I pray that you would give me the sense of your presence, the touch of your power, and the cleansing and the unction that it are all needed tonight, Lord, because this is an undertaking that we can do by rote, but we cannot accomplish anything of eternal consequence or value apart from the power of God. And so I pray that you will be with me tonight, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart might be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, for I pray now in Jesus' holy name, amen. It's really hard to imagine, I think, a trip that is fraught with so many ups and downs, twists and turns, even perhaps we might say mishaps, is what Paul's journey to Rome turned out to be. Yet at the same time, it's also hard to imagine a story in the Bible that is so replete with the evidence of what we might call God's amazing providence. If you and I are going to talk about the subject tonight of God's providence, it's well that we understand what it is that we mean when we're referring to God's providence. Lots of definitions perhaps could be given. Here's an old one that I think is tried and true and is a good one. This comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, where it says, Providence is God's completely holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of every creature and every action. So if you ponder that, that's perhaps a lot of words, but if you ponder and catch the gist of that for a moment, you might ask yourself, and it's perhaps helpful by way of understanding providence a little bit better, to compare it with something very closely related, and that's God's sovereignty. But although there is overlap, and although these two ideas are very, very similar, Here's a distinction that we could make in this, that whereas God's sovereignty has much more to do with his all-powerful control, God's providence has more to do with his all-wise management of things. Maybe a story at the beginning will help us a little bit with this. There, there came a Lord's Day in the ministry of C.H. Spurgeon when he went to address 
his flock and preach a sermon on the subject of providence. This is one of Spurgeon's sermons on providence. It so happens that in the week prior to this, Spurgeon had been invited away to preach. It wasn't uncommon. But Spurgeon had been invited away to preach, and it was a little place called Halifax. Unfortunately, it had begun to snow earlier in the day, and so even though they had anticipated a, a crowd of around 8,000 people, they'd made preparations, and they had, had built this large wooden structure and this building for this purpose, Spurgeon kind of had to steal himself, thinking, I'm going to get to this place, and it's going to be a cavernous building, and there will only be a handful of people there to preach to. Well, he got there, and he was pleasantly surprised because there were some 5,000 people who had gathered. And they had the afternoon service, and everything went splendidly. Looking from the standpoint of the speaker on the platform, there was a large gallery. The British would call it a gallery. We'd probably say a balcony. But right out in front, there was this massive wooden structure that would hold about 2,000 people, the gallery as he referred to it. Well, they got through the afternoon service just fine, and things were crowded, and a good, good group of people were there. They got back to the evening service, and they had a good crowd at the evening service as well. And the gallery was, again, very crowded and very full. And they concluded the evening service, and when they had concluded the evening service, most of the people, now imagine this, because you've got a crowd of around 5,000 people, it takes a while to, for them to disperse. But most of these people had, in fact, dispersed so that there were only maybe around 100 people left there, when all of a sudden, uh, some of the flooring of this balcony cascaded downward. Well, Spurgeon remarked on the fact as he was preaching on Sunday about all of this that had taken place on Wednesday, how remarkable it was that God had timed things and worked things in such a way that most of the people were gone. There were only two people who had any kind of a serious injury, whatever. Two people had broken legs. And not to minimize that, but when you consider what it could have been, as Spurgeon remarked on this to his people. And then he went on to point out something else to them about it, that not only had it happened in that particular way, but that this portion of the balcony had come down when the crowds had mostly dismissed. But three hours later, after the service had concluded and people were gone, the whole thing, I mean, it, it kept snowing, and the whole thing, just this whole structure that had been erected just came tumbling down. And again, Spurgeon remarked in his sermon about, you can imagine what that would have been had this happened three hours earlier. And then he went on to talk about the fact that, you know, actually there was more because it, it would be what we would refer to as a wet snow, so that through the course of the day, and a wet snow is a very heavy snow, but you have a lot of water mixed in with this. And so... He remarked on the fact that had it not been a wet snow and much of it melted as it fell and run off, that you could only imagine how if it had frozen up and the weight of that had accumulated on that building that it would have fallen much sooner since they now knew that that's exactly what was going to happen, that the building fell. And all of this he remarked on as, as an amazing display of God's providential working on behalf of his people. He went on to say this. This is one sentence I'd like to quote for you. He said, This I know. If I had been an unbeliever to this day in the doctrine of the supervision and wise care of God, I must have been a believer in it at this hour. Catch the phrase, the doctrine of the supervision and wise care of God. So to make the distinction you think about God's sovereignty and his all-powerful control. God's in control of the weather. 
But when we think about how God orchestrated the weather and how God controlled each exact event in the way that he did in the timing of everything to preserve his servant and to allow the gospel to, to be preached that day, then we think more along the lines of God's all-wise management. And so here's a distinction that hopefully will help us fix this in our mind about God's sovereignty and what God's providence, how they're similar and how there's a little bit of difference in them. I made a remark similar to this on Wednesday evening, but thinking about God's providence, I think we maybe don't tend to recognize it or see it as much in the good events of life. But in the events that seem to be negative, those events in life, as God allows us later to look back on those things and to see how he has managed them and governed them and worked them out, not only for our good, but for his glory. Now that's an amazing display of God's providence, and that really is something that fixes itself in our hearts and minds. That's exactly what I want to talk to you about tonight. Paul's journey to Rome, and this little text of Scripture that says at the end of verse number 14, and so we came to Rome. If you think about it for a moment, that text seems to be maybe a little bit on the unimpressive side. It's far from it. In fact, it's a huge text of Scripture. But the whole gist of the thing, the whole linchpin that the whole thing hangs on is a simple little word that's more unimpressive, really, it would seem in English, than the text. It's the word so. And it's why I read to you not only verse 14 at the end, but also harking back to verse 44 at the end of chapter 27. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. See, this word so is so flexible in English. I mean, you can use so as an adjective. You can use so as an interjection. You can exclaim. You can look at somebody and go, so? I mean, you can do so many things with the word so, and I'm not talking about needle and thread in English that you're hard-pressed sometimes when you look at a text of Scripture, unless maybe you've had the benefit of a commentary or you've had the benefit of studying the original language. It turns out that the word that's used here, by the way, I should make the remark at this point that when you look at this, you have to realize Luke, who writes this, is the closest thing that Paul has to a biographer. So when you think about that, and then you think about this statement that he makes at the end of verse 14 when he says, and so we came to Rome. He uses the word hutos in the original. For those of you who have that background, you know that you can certainly translate hutos as so, or you can translate it as thus, or if you really want to bring out the full bore significance of it, you would translate it exactly the way the version that we read from tonight did at the end of chapter 40, or verse 44 of chapter 27, in this way. It is what grammarians, I suppose, could, could and would refer to as an adverb of manner. Now, why all the technicalities? Because to put that right down where you and I can get at it and understand it, when you think of Luke as the closest thing to a biographer that Paul has, what he's really saying to us in both of those verses, and this is how it happened. It happened in this way. I'm telling you this story. And so when we come to this text of Scripture tonight, and so we came to Rome, you really have to zoom out. You can look at the nearer context, but you really don't get the significance of the point that Luke is trying to make because Rome has been on Paul's mind for quite a while now. In fact, 
let's do this tonight. Let's start on our journey, and uh, we'll just have to do the best we can with this, but let's go back all the way to the 19th chapter of Acts. This is how far back this goes. We're talking now several years in time because when we read in Acts chapter 19, and, and we're going to sort of work forward with this, so don't worry, you'll, you'll flip around a little bit, not too terribly be- much, because we'll be kind of working our way back towards this text. But here, after this riot that takes place at Ephesus, um, Luke tells us this in verse 21, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, so when you see Achaia, just think of Greece, and go to Jerusalem saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Here's another unimpressive word, must. Till you recognize the force that's behind that word. This is the word that means it's necessary. So this is reflecting a conviction on Paul's part. And as far back as this point in the story, which is several years before we we get to where we are in our text of Scripture, Paul's been thinking a lot about Rome. Uh, We can add to this. Um, I'll not ask you to turn, and I don't have the verse for you tonight, but thinking back to what Paul remarked when he was in Greece, towards the end of his third missionary journey, he's in Corinth. And it's from Corinth that he writes to the Romans. So that's the context and significance of this remark. Romans chapter 15, he says this, verse 23, But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions. And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Why is it that Jerusalem is on his heart and mind? Well, he tells them a little bit more about this because he says, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution, verse 26, to the, for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. And then this, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I I kind of stand a little bit in awe of the Apostle Paul, and you have to balance that, of course, because you can't get your heroes too high up on the pedestal because they're human beings just like we are. But, I mean, this guy is type A to the max, and he's constantly used to being on the go. He's constantly used to traveling. He's constantly used to preaching. And basically what he said to them is, I don't have anywhere else in these parts. I I couldn't make that statement. (laughs) I mean, I think of all my years of ministry, and I'd never make that statement. But that's the statement he makes to them. I don't have anywhere else, and I'm not one to build on someone else's foundation, so I am hoping to come to you on my way to Spain. Isn't that interesting? I mean, he's always got the objective, two and three objectives out there of what he's thinking God is leading him to do. So the whole point in this is that thinking back to a statement that I made earlier, Providence is much more reflective, it seems, makes a much greater impression on us when we view the untoward circumstances that seem to characterize our lives, the twists and turns, the ups and downs. Did Paul have any of that on his journey to Rome? Yeah, a lot. In fact, as I said in the beginning, kind of hard to imagine really a journey 
that was beset with more of it than this. So let's think about Jerusalem. Since he said he was bound and determined to go to Jerusalem and sensed that God was leading him there, he was on a mission to take this offering that he had collected from these Gentile churches. We've read about that. And I hope this statement's not too strong for you, but when you really take a look at this section and when you read the story about Paul's trip to Jerusalem, it's really hard to come to any conclusion other than the fact that from a human standpoint, and I really have to emphasize that language, from a human standpoint, this trip was an utter disaster. You ever had anything that you've made that remark about in your life and then looked back later and thought, hmm, you know, God is able to take disaster and out of it make something that accomplishes his purposes and redounds to his honor and glory. Well, I think it's pretty clear that Paul was on his way to Jerusalem and it was all a part of God's plan. When he gets to Jerusalem, and I have to just summarize this for you, but when he gets to Jerusalem, you remember that James, who is the Lord's half-brother and is sort of in charge of the church there in Jerusalem, has a plan. It's because of the fact that he says, well, you know, all of the Jews here that follow Christ and are zealous for the gospel, here's what they hear about you. Constantly they're hearing about you that you're advising people not to live according to the law and not to circumcise their children and all of this kind of thing. And so you remember the plan that he had, the idea that he had, he said, we've got several fellows here and they have a vow on them, so this is perfect. All you have to do is to go be at charges. King James says, go be at charges with them. Basically, what that means is, is that you're going to go with them, accompany them to the temple so that when they make the required sacrifice at the end of the vow and they can shave their heads, signifying the end of the vow, everybody's going to see you in the temple. Everybody's going to see you worshiping there with these people. They'll see the sacrifice offered and they'll know that there's nothing to all these things that they keep hearing about you that you teach people to live contrary to the law. It was a good plan. It was a well-intentioned plan, but it turned, it just totally blew up. Why does that happen? Well, because there were certain Jews who were at the temple when Paul went there who were Jews from Roman Asia, which is where Ephesus was and where so many of these churches that Paul administered in were. They were there, and they immediately erupted by, by telling people that here was this fellow that, that We've heard all of this about, this fellow who tells people everywhere not to pay attention to the law and not to live after, uh, here it is in verse 28 of chapter 21, listen to this. Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and this place. And immediately, what happens? There's a riot in the place. In fact, they came within a hair's breadth of killing Paul. And what happens at this point is that the Romans become aware of this. Once again, if, if you've ever seen models of Jerusalem or if you've been and seen the, the model there or you've looked at pictures of this, here's what you have. At the, at the northwest corner of the, of the temple complex, you have what's known as the Fortress of Antonia. And that's where the Roman garrison was. And they had two sets of stairs that were between that place and the temple compound for exactly this kind of reason, so that they could rush down there if they needed to and quell any kind of disturbance or riot. And so when they get wise to what's going on in this place, they rush down there. The chief captain or the tribune, as he's referred to in the story there, arrests Paul. And 
Then, of course, we know what happens after this eventually, after Paul manages to avoid being flogged. He goes down to the Sanhedrin, and he addresses the Sanhedrin. He's there, and the dissension becomes so fierce that they nearly kill him there, and the tribune has to pull him out of there again. And I mean, so the point that I'm trying to make, I think you get the picture, is, is that really, from a human standpoint, this is just a total disaster. So how do we see much good coming out of this? Well, I think the good that you see coming out of it is this amazing display of providence. I just want you to think about the people who are involved in this because so often God will step in on our behalf through people. And oftentimes the people that he chooses to use in these circumstances are the most unexpected people. May I show you this? So, in chapter 21, verse 37, the first person that I want to call your attention to is a man by the name of Claudius Lysias. He's the chief captain. He's the, he's the guy who's in charge of the soldiers, the Roman detail. And you know the story how they're carrying Paul on their shoulders because of the, the soldiers have him hoisted up away from these people who are trying to get at him. And verse 37 says this, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the chief captain or the tribune, may I say something to you? Well, here's what I'm going to tell you, folks. This guy, I mean, you think about a hardened military man, a soldier. And at that moment, I think that you could have well nigh knocked him over with a feather. Why is that? Because he thought that he had just made the arrest of his life. He thought that he had the career maker. He thought that he had apprehended this Egyptian individual. Don't have time to read the story, just have to summarize it. Who had led an, an uprising of some 4,000 people and had fled into the desert. That's the person that he thought he had apprehended. Instead, this person that he has who's characterized by nothing but calm and perfect aplomb, turns to him and says, may I speak to you? But when he does that, he speaks to him in Greek. He's not expecting that. He thinks he's got this Egyptian dude, and he doesn't realize what's going on. And so when this happens a little bit further, Paul says, no, you've got this wrong. I'm a Jew, verse 39, from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. And he goes on, and finally, he, he's got the second feather to knock him over with. He says, so this is how nonplussed this guy is, that Paul says to him, and this is how calm Paul is, when he says to him, and I beseech you, or I beg you, verse 30, permit me to speak to the people. Now, can you imagine that? I mean, can you imagine how cool, calm, and collected, if you... <laughs> I can use the expression, Paul is. And he turns to this guy. Under those circumstances, he's just come about that far from being lynched. And he turns to him and says, let me address the people. How likely do you think it is that a man like that would have acceded to that request? But he does. And here's Paul. I mean, you have to get this picture. I mean, here's Paul. He's standing here up elevated above these people on these stairs, and he puts his hand out like that, and it just gets as quiet. And then he begins to address them in their native tongue. And if it wasn't quiet before, you could have heard a pin drop. And what unfolds? He gives his testimony. 
I mean, can you ask for something better than that in terms of what his life's calling was and what his true mission from God was? It's hard to imagine that. But that's what God does. Now, so he goes down later into the Sanhedrin. They want to inquire what's going on. And again, just sort of have to summarize this a little bit. But here's the second individual. If we turn over to chapter 23, so you remember they get to the certain place in the story where they see, okay, we're not going to be able to get Paul killed. We're not going to be able to kill Paul. So you remember that 40 of them take an oath. <laughs> I mean, you have to find humor where you can find humor, and this is funny. These guys take an oath that they won't eat or drink until they kill Paul. And the idea is to request of the chief captain that he bring Paul back the next day so that they can inquire, inquire more accurately concerning a point of doctrine when all the while the whole plan is for these 40 guys to kill him before he ever gets there. Now how cool is this? Verse 16 of chapter 23. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Here's a boy. He overhears their plans. I mean, this is like the this is like the Battle of Sharpsburg. This is like Antietam. This is like when the Union troops find General Lee's battle plans wrapped around a cigar. I mean, it's that kind of a thing. And this boy goes and gets one of the soldiers. Paul tells him to go tell the Tribune, and he does. He goes and tells the Tribune, and finally, after he, he takes the boy aside, he dismisses him, verse number 22, charging him, tell no one that you inform me of these things. 200 soldiers, infantry, 200 spearmen, and 70 cavalry take Paul by night to Caesarea. I'm just wanting you to see how God is capable of working in the most unlikely people in order to avert disaster, if that is his intent. And that was his intent. And not only to overrule this disaster, but in the process to make opportunities for Paul to preach the gospel that probably could not and would not have come about any other way. Let's think about another thing. I had a reason for talking to you a little while ago about Paul being type A to the max, and that's because people that are that way don't tend to do well with delay. But delay you have because Paul gets to Caesarea, which is where the Roman governor's residence is, and he's essentially in captivity, albeit kind of a relaxed form of captivity, for two years. Chapter 24, verse 27 tells us this. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Well, these politicians aren't much different in any day you're living in. I mean, they, they, both of them wanted to have favor with the people. So, I mean, Paul has two years there, basically. The Jews come down, they make their accusations, but he doesn't want to make a decision. So he fumbles around, fumbles around, and finally he's replaced by another man that we read about in this verse whose name is Portius Festus. So you have Felix, then you have Festus, and two years go by. 
two years for a guy that's already been planning his trip to Rome. He's just making a quick trip to Jerusalem to drop off this offering. And two years later, he still hasn't left Palestine. Two years of Roman captivity. Is God in control of that? Is God's amazing providence at work even on occasions like that? I'd say so. Especially when you realize this, folks. There's a verse that you really should think about in the context of what goes on with Paul in the book of Acts, and it's Acts 9.15. It's back when Ananias is essentially saying to the Lord, Lord, you really don't want me to go restore this guy's sight. I mean, you, you heard about this guy? You know about this guy? He, he's been persecuting your people. Hello, this isn't good. And the Lord says to Ananias, but go thy way. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Those three right there. Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. What do you have in this chapter? You have Paul bearing the name of Christ before two Roman governors and one king. So Festus diddles around, Felix diddles around, and leaves Paul in confinement. Festus, same kind of a thing, really, and finally gets to the point, I think you know the story well enough that I can just summarize this for you, but finally gets to the point where Paul realizes, you know, this isn't going anywhere. Have you ever thought that way about your lawyer? This isn't going anywhere. And he finally says, I appeal to Caesar. You know I've done nothing that's worthy of bonds or imprisonment. You know that full well. But you won't make a decision. I appeal to the emperor. And so he appeals to Caesar. Well, now, Festus is in a bit of a tight spot. Why is that so? Because you haven't done the right thing, and he doesn't really have a coherent case he doesn't really have a coherent reason. What are you supposed to write to Caesar and say, by the way, I've got this guy, I really should have let him go, but I didn't do it because I wanted the Jews to like me, so I'm sending him to you. I can imagine how your governorship career would go with a letter like that. He knows he's in a tight spot, and we'll just call it good luck because that's the human expression. But we're talking here tonight about God's providence. Something happens in his favor, and what it is is that Agrippa comes kind of to the king, comes to kind of welcome him and greet him as the new governor and so forth, and he starts telling the king about Paul. And so the king's reaction to this is, I'd like to hear him too. And so they assemble all of these people. I want, I'm going to bring your attention now to verse number 23 of chapter 25. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, this is his wife, came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Just, just park on that verse a minute. Who's here? Festus is here. Anybody who's anybody in Caesarea is here. That's my translation. And King Agrippa is here. And Festus starts in and says, King Agrippa and all who are present here with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, so forth and so on. And you get to verse 1 of chapter 26, and Agrippa looks at Paul and he says, you have permission to speak for yourself. And away we go. I mean, it's, it's one of the most brilliant 
summations of Paul's mission and testimony that you find anywhere in the Scripture. It's brilliant not because Paul's brilliant, although he is. It's brilliant because in the providence of God, Paul has had every opportunity to contemplate and to be prepared for this, and he is. And it's one of the three times in the book of Acts we have Paul giving his testimony, which he does. Again, this is God's plan, see, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. All right, let's talk about something else negative for just a moment or two, disappointment. You'd think we'd hear something about some fantastic conversions coming out of this, wouldn't you? I mean, if God sets up these opportunities to witness to Felix and to witness to Festus and to witness to King Agrippa, don't you think we'd hear some wonderful story of some amazing conversion? Don't know. Holy Spirit's in control of the information that we're given here and what he chooses to share with us. Don't know if any of those people accepted Christ. I can only tell you from reading the accounts, they didn't do so at that time. You ever had that? I mean, you know, it's tough sometimes. You witness to people and you just kind of get a little discouraged about the whole thing. You just kind of get yourself worked up into a spiritual funk because you, you, you think to yourself, you know, I witness, I hand out tracts, and nothing ever seems to come of it. And it, it can be discouraging. It can be disappointing. Let me show you how, just to take a second to show you how in-depth these opportunities were. Look back at chapter 24 for a moment, verse 24. Some days, after, after some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. This doesn't happen once. This happens several times. And as he reasoned, this is Paul, his, his witness, and God is so powerfully involved with his witness, look at the result that it produces. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed, or as the King James says, trembled, and said, go away for the present, when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him, how, what's that next word? Often. And conversed with him. I mean, folks, this isn't just a, hello, how are you? You should really think about accepting Christ. This is, this is an opportunity that God develops over the course of a number of, a number of sessions with this man. No record of any conversion. I mean, when you, when you get to the story about Festus, it's not a whole lot better. I think I've sort of already summarized that for you, but let's go to Agrippa. That one's the one that we probably know better. This will sort of include them both. So Paul is in the midst of this, and as he, verse 24 of chapter 26, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said, here's again the effect of Paul's ministry. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your learning, great learning is driving you out of your mind. And, and not to be bothered by that, Paul simply says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner. 
And then if you thought he was bold before, look at this. Watch this direct address. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And the king says to him, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And the unflappable Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Where else would you get an opportunity like that to speak to people for Christ? We've got to hasten and talk about something else for just a moment to spare. This was something I mentioned in the last, but you know, they finally set sail for Rome. And what can we say about shipwreck? I mean, talk about disasters, talk about ups and downs, talk about fits and turns. This is bad. It's so bad, in fact, that Luke makes a statement in chapter 27, verse 20, when he says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Folks, I'll tell you, when you're sailing in the ancient world, just remember, you don't have charts, you don't have GPS, and you don't have the modern aids that we have in sailing. What do you have? You have the stars. And if you can't get any reckoning off the stars, which they couldn't because of this storm for any number of days, I mean, they went 14 days without even eating, so you can imagine this has gone on for some time. They have no idea where they are, no idea whatever. They're concerned about their, they're going to run into the Sirtis, which is that off of North Africa, that place in the Mediterranean where it, it just gets shallow. They're concerned about that. They don't know where in the world they are. They don't know what in the world is going to happen. They're famished. They're tired. They're just defeated. You say, well, that can't be Paul. Have you ever looked in the mirror? I think it did include Paul. I mean, this is Luke. He's telling us the story. He writes in the first person plural. He doesn't leave Paul out. But see, God knows that too. So God not only uses unusual people, circumstances, and events, but God is even capable of using angels. So God sends his angel to give Paul the very encouragement he needs so that he stands up in front of these people. Verse 23, for this very night there stood before me the angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship and said, do not be afraid. See, he would not have said that to Paul where he uses, as I pointed out in that last sermon, he uses the present prohibitive. You would bring the significance of that out by saying, stop fearing, Paul. But see, it's like I said to you earlier, if you put your heroes too high up on a pedestal, you miss the good that you can learn from realizing that though these people are the exceptional people, there's no question about that, they were also human. And you miss out totally on the impact of the story by so elevating sometimes people that you don't think they get up in the morning and put their pants on the same way you do. No, I mean, you're in a bad way, really, when you don't have hope anymore. And God knows his servant to complete his mission. And the end result of this is that 
he witnesses to probably 273 lost people. Why do you say 273? Well, if you look at the end, he gives us the number, Luke does. Verse 37, we were all 276 persons in the ship. Well, there was Paul, and he was a believer, and there was Aristarchus from Thessalonica, and he was a believer, and there was Luke. Other than that, whether he won the centurion to the Lord, we don't know, but he likely had 273 lost people. It's amazing. Here's the last thing. Haven't we already talked about this? Danger? That's pretty negative when you find yourself in danger. Folks, look, it can't get any worse or can it? He shipwrecked on Malta and there's nothing worse than about 40 degrees and rain. Now, I, I don't know what the temperature was that day. I just know it says it was cold and raining. And there is no cold like that. I mean, when you get that damp, cold air and a low temperature like that, and they're all chilled to the bone. And Paul's just trying to make himself some use. He goes, he gathers a, a load of sticks to come bring on the fire that these people had made to help warm these shipwrecked people up. And out from that comes a snake and fastens on his hand. I mean, it just can't get any worse, or can it? Well, they think he's a criminal. They think he's, he's dodged this shipwreck, but justice is caught up with him. And they keep looking. He doesn't swell. It's nasty if you've ever seen that. I mean, I have, and it's nasty. He doesn't, he doesn't swell. He doesn't convulse. He just stands there looking at him like nothing really has happened. And they change their minds. They know this guy... He's not a criminal, he's a god. And what ends up happening? Well, the chief man in the island puts them up for three days. Then he finds out that his father is sick. He heals him. All these people come. He witnesses all those people. And by the time they get ready to leave three months later on that ship, these people load it with everything that those people had need of. I'm just saying that the God who uses circumstances, the God who uses angels, the God who uses the most unlikely people, the God who uses animals, is the same God who's in control of all these circumstances in my life and yours. And there is nothing that when looking back and seeing how God took those unsavory events in our lives, overruled them for our good and the advancement of his kingdom, there is nothing that makes the diamond of God's providence sparkle more. Dear God, we want to be impressed with you tonight, and we are. We sang earlier about a God who is incomprehensible. You are that person. We thank you and we praise you for your unfathomable work in taking people like we are and so working the untoward, the difficult, the things at the time that we grind our teeth over, the things that we complain about, and you overrule them 
And then you show us your magnificent wisdom, your power, and the good that you have done. And so our hearts well up in praise to you tonight. Help us to trust you more tomorrow. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.